Hello and welcome to There's No Business Like, a podcast where friends and industry colleagues explore topics and interview leaders in our industry of professional theatrical touring. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to There's No Business Like. I'm Brian Zelmer from Kutztown University. We're having a great time with the podcast, and I hope you're getting some great nuggets out of it, too. As in all our podcasts, I'm here with Josh Benson. What's up, guys? It's Josh Benson from the Marion Cultural and Civic Center. Danielle Van Hook. Hi, it's Danielle from the Alden in McLean, Virginia. Kevin Maynard. Hey, friends, it's Kevin from Quad City Arts. And Katie Miller. Hey, Katie Miller with the Midland Center for the Arts, Midland, Michigan. Before we get into this interview, this is the first time that we've interviewed two guests at the same time. And because of some technical difficulties I had on the day of the interview, Josh Benson joined me at the end. You'll hear his voice. You might forget that he's part of it. And all of a sudden, uh, he'll... And then I just ghost right in on it. Yeah, so no, that's it was great, and you had some great questions. Um, anyway, before we get into that, I'm just curious, have you guys had any jobs before you got into this industry that you look back on and say, hey, I actually got some some good skills from that, or it helped me in my current job, but maybe at the time you weren't thinking about that? One of my first jobs was in a call center for an elevator and escalator company. So I took phone calls from people with broken down elevators and escalators, people stuck in them or got injured by them. And honestly, I never thought it would transfer any time in my life. But what it really has helped me with was customer service and just, you know, being able to like diffuse a situation or, you know, kind of talk things out. So it had some very interesting you know, I gained a lot of interesting stories from it, but I didn't think it was actually something that would help me out, you know, running an art center. Well, how do you get stuck in an escalator? Uh, typically, your fingers do. <laughs> oh, oh no. Josh might be able to relate to that. It's terrible. <laughs> so what, my very first actual job was um, we were setting up a rural 911 system. I was 16, and uh, my job was to cold call everyone and convince them that I was actually part of the police department and that I was confirming their address and cold calling people and trying to convince them as a 16 year old that you're connected with the police department in a time of prank calls uh, was a very difficult job, but led me to not being afraid to, to cold call anyone in any industry because the worst thing that can happen is they'll hang up on. You. And then after that, I managed a movie theater for a few years, had a lot of customer service experience there, and uh, also managed a tuxedo shop. Um, this was right after I was a auto mechanic for three years, because um, I didn't think I had a future in the theater and performing arts industry. So, Wow, the many lives of Josh Benson. I'm going to need to see a resume. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll jump in next. I, for uh, three, four summers during college, I actually worked at a golf course um, in Michigan. And I was like pro shop. I did golf carts. I tended bar. I did lots of different things. Um, but after you have managed hundreds of golfers descending upon the pro shop for um, a charity scramble and like having to organize all of those people and send people out to the correct tees and tell them where they're going and do the cart rentals and all of that stuff, like you can manage the craziest dance company, theater company, audience, you know, <laughs> uh, situation like that really prepared me for crowd management and logistical management for certain. I felt the same way with managing a tuxedo shop. Dealing with brides mothers is the most stressful thing I've ever done in my life. This is still a little bit in industry, but I learned pretty early on that you don't get what you don't ask for. I was an intern at a theater um, for a while and sometimes we needed odd props or set pieces and they would be like, hey, Danielle, just get the phone book, start cold calling people. 
and we needed airplane seats one year. And I cold called every airline and airport in the phone book. And eventually someone was like, yeah, we got some seats up in the up in the thing. Why don't you come to the hangar, um, you know, at the airport an hour away from here? And we just arranged later that day, we drove in somebody, another intern's car to the airport, got three airplane seats, and we were allowed to rent them. Those are all great examples. And I, I've had a lot of pre-industry experience as well in all different types of jobs, sort of like Josh. But uh, one of them was uh, a deli clerk. It's another place you can lose a finger. <laughs> it is. You can absolutely lose a finger uh, with the slicer. But I learned some skills there. But actually, I, what I learned more from that job was what not to do, the way not to treat people um, from the really horrible mm. management there. Our guests today, uh, Jennifer Morris and Laurel Cannon, both had incredible experiences before they got into the industry. And they're going to talk about how they use those transferable skills. Let's take a listen now. Hi, I'm Jennifer Morris, Artist Manager with Siegel Artist Management. Hi, I'm Laurel Cannon, Artist Manager with Siegel Artist Management. Hi, ladies, and welcome to the podcast. We're so happy to have you guys here with us. Before we really get into the meat of things, I just was wondering if one of you could maybe describe what it means generally to be an agent. Well, there's agent and there's artist manager. Um, an agent is really defined as a salesperson. Uh, their job is primarily get a booking, get a booking, get a booking. Um, as an artist manager, we look a little more at the whole package. So we look at the marketing materials, the tech direct, the tech writer, get them to really define their goals and take a more holistic approach. Um, and I think we take that holistic approach also with our buyers. Um, we don't just come in and say, sell this artist on this date, this fee. We talk about the goals for that artist in that community. Thank you for clarifying. And I just was wondering, are there agents in the industry that are only agents or are they pretty much all as you described? Uh, no, there's a lot of people who um, are just strictly a sales function. Um, and those artists may have a separate management team. Whereas the artists that we work with, we are both the management team and the sales force for them. We have colleagues who will say all the time, it's like, oh, I don't do any of that stuff for my artists. And um, they often are baffled why we're doing some of the things that we're doing. And we just say we're artist management. We're not agent. And that's why our agency name is artist management instead of agency. And one of the other things that we do... Uh, we help our artists uh, guide their programs. If they have an idea for a new show uh, they'd like to create, we help guide that conversation. And we also work with them to create their marketing materials because we realize the importance of good marketing for our presenters. That's great. And we're going to get into a lot of those details in a few minutes. But first, I just want to learn how both of you uh, entered the field. Like, what was your professional journey? How did you start? <laughs> um, sometimes that's a step in a weird direction with no guidance other than, you know, the divining rod of what do you love and what do you like? I was a non-traditional student. Uh, I was a single mom. I was divorced at that point and had a four-year-old and needed a degree that was flexible. Uh, so I actually have a journalism degree and then had to start making decisions from there. And was, I was working full time and going to school full time and saw an internship on the board for five hours a week for the regional ballet to basically clean up their um, database. And when I got there, 
shortly after I got there, the um, nonprofit imploded. And um, to this day, I don't know who the man was, but he went to the he was an interim guy who came in for like two months and told the board to hire me. And they did. <laughs> and uh, all of a sudden I was marketing and touring and my job training was there's the computer, there's the phone. I have a really unusual uh, career trajectory. I'm actually a double degreed paralegal and I was a litigation paralegal uh, specializing in litigation and real estate law and uh, went back to school to do a master's degree in public administration with the career goal to go to Washington, D.C. and uh, write policy. One of my grad advisors suggested that I get into a field called grant writing because I love to research and write. So I did an internship at a small arts council with uh, probably one of the best grant writers in, in the field. And arts administration bug bit me and I never looked back. Then when we were moved with a relocation uh, to a different, uh, to Wisconsin, I wound up running a community concert association. We were uh, in the process of trying to open a new, uh, do a restoration of a 1923 theater that had been empty for several years. So I became the campaign administrator and ran the fundraising for that, then became the executive executive director of the center when we opened. I like to say I've uh, kind of been there, done that in a lot of different components, a lot of learning uh, fast on my feet. I think it's interesting because this is a story that I hear a lot with our colleagues is they start down one path and somehow not fell into it is maybe not the right word, but kind of discovered this whole arts world <laughs> industry in an unusual way. And you guys both, I mean, from journalism, from Jennifer, and then from legal, from you, and then you both <laughs> landed here. That's that's really cool. Yeah. I want to go back to Jennifer's story uh, first and pick that up. So was your plan when you're in uh, getting your journalism degree, hopefully to do something with journalism specifically, or was that just the Go, go ahead. You're shaking your head. No, I, my goal was to have the most flexible degree to get finished as fast as I could. I graduated from Drake and, you know, the last 30 credits I burned out in 15 months. Wow. And, uh, yeah. And so it's a little crazed. I just kind of told my friends, I'll see you in 15 months and put my head down and, and wrapped up. And in the midst of all that, I found the uh, found the thing on the board that said here, you know, looking for five hour week internship. And I it wasn't music. You know, I would my goal was music. And uh, I looked at I said, well, Dan, you know, I'm in the middle of Iowa, not a whole lot of options for music. And I knew I was going to go to the East Coast at some point. And, uh, so I figured ah, those skills are translatable. <laughs> so I, I went ahead and took it cause it's like, what's five hours I already don't have. You talk about translatable skills and mm -hmm. certainly both of those backgrounds have translatable skills that's, that are obvious, but you also, Jennifer, when you first started, you talked about how you, how you had to quickly, you were just like, here's this, here's this now go. And you had to learn a lot on your feet. I'm sure Laurel, the same thing was for you. You had to figure a lot of things out. What were those early things that were most important to learn? Uh, that you didn't have from your well, your just to to backtrack a little bit, um, I had such a long work history and a and a history of decision making, so I really wasn't intimidated to that. And I think one thing that 
that young people should really never be afraid of is to go work for a small organization. Because I, I always tell them, you're going to get five years experience in two. And when you get out of that job, you're going to know you have your chops. Because when I went to the Boston Philharmonic Orchestra, I literally was led to the computer and a file and said, there's the organization. They did not have any management in place for six months before I walked in. And I literally had 10 weeks to put together this, this season, the season, the everything. And so don't be afraid because you, you will walk it, you, you will be shocked at how much you learn in a short amount of time. So I kind of got this weird career path of setting up systems, um, having to go in and troubleshoot a lot. And that actually works really well for artist management because we're troubleshooting all the time. So I want to, I want to bring us up to today with Siegel Artist Management. We did kind of touch on the booking part of it and so forth, but I know you do a lot more. Can you just tell us maybe a little bit about your, what type of agency, the roster and, and the services you provide? Our roster is an eclectic mix. Um, we do dance, music, special attractions, arts and ed, and family. And we started in the 19, early 1970s. We're 50 years old. Um, and it started as a classical music roster. Um, we have very little classical music roster on, you know, and that is really an evolution of uh, what was of interest to the different team members of Siegel uh, that were on the Siegel Artist Management Team. Um, it's also just reflective of who our buyer is. Most of our buyers are 300 to 1200 seats, multi-genre. So the, the best phone call I can have in a day is going to be the one where I can help that buyer do more than one thing in one phone call. It's, you know, it's from, from an efficiency standpoint, you know, when they, when I work with somebody, well, when the team works with somebody, we literally, okay, what are we doing for arts and ed? What are we doing for the schools? What are we doing for dance? What are we doing for civic engagement? And all of our artists have an education component or a civic engagement component. Our agency has evolved to sort of reflect our buyer. There are a lot of, there's a lot of niche agencies that will, uh, their roster is primarily, primarily classical or their roster is primarily country or family entertainment. But, you know, we take kind of the holistic approach, you know, as Jennifer said, we know what our buyer's seat capacities are. We try and really focus on uh, being a one-stop shop for, for those organizations, especially the really small presenters. We're talking about the types of services you do externally looking outwards, but you also, I know, serve your artists directly. I know Jennifer and I have had conversations. She told me about how she helps them get their marketing materials up. And We're kind of ferocious about those things. Yeah, tell, tell us and, a little bit about that. Well, too. we we want artists that are tour ready. You know, one of the things that we've done literally for 50 years is bring artists to market. Mm -hmm. So there will be artists that, uh, just, you know, we love it. We think we can do something for that artist and maybe they're not quite there yet. So we will work with them on show concept, like Laurel mentioned, we'll work with them on marketing materials. Um, every year I throw out the gauntlet to all artists and I say, are your photos cover worthy? You know, and I try to set it up. So it's like, you know, if your photo can't make the cover of my brochure, it's never going to make the cover of a, of a presenter's brochure. I was a presenter for 10 10 years. And the biggest thing for me in looking at an artist too, and I, we always tell our artists this, if we're being approached, 
The first thing that we do, we go to the artist's website and have a look. The website needs to be a very good calling card for, because we know present, both of you are shaking, are, are nodding, yes. But um, your website needs to be a very, very good representation of you, your work, and, um, you know, the look and uh, video and music needs to be top quality because that may be the first thing that a presenter looks at. So it absolutely needs to be, you know, top-notch representation. So getting them to kind of think a little more, um, I'm fussy about tech writers. Can we just um, explain what a tech writer is maybe? Sure. Um, the technical writer is a, a it's a piece of the contract that it outlines the technical requirements that are required to uh, present that show. So does the artist have projection? Does the artist need a Marley floor? Uh, what kind of sound, you know, monitors are instrument, you know, do they need to provide backline? Do they, um, you know, other additional instruments? Um, do they need to provide catering? dressing rooms. Um, what are the needs of that artist for that engagement? And, you know, we want to make sure it's the right artist in the right stage in the right community at the right artist fee, because those are sort of the four pieces that we try to make sure are in alignment. So let's say there's a, a listener out there who is looking at becoming an artist themselves. Are there certain approaches that woo an agency? Um, actually, most of the artists on our roster come to us from presenters, um, believe it or not. Uh, it's usually a presenter recommendation. Um, Dasha Kelly Hamilton, who is on our roster, which was kind of a funny story because that actually was during COVID. We had just printed the first of two artist materials. And uh, so we'd already gone to print and we had a presenter call us and say, hey, I've been working with this artist. She's ready for representation. Will you talk to her? And I tried to ignore the fact that I've already spent money on marketing materials and <laughs> And said, yes, of course, we'll talk to her. And Laurel and I were on the call. And the whole time she was, this artist was so on mission for us that, you know, I'm happy to eat that printing cost to get her into the, in, get her onboarded. And we gave her the choice. We said, look, it's COVID. Do you want to wait till next year? Or do you want to do the onboarding stuff now? And she was like, hey, let's get started. So, um, you know, she she knew we were going to be starting that initial conversation with presenters. So she chose to start during COVID. So interestingly enough, I think we signed five artists the year of COVID, which is crazy, but we did. And we, you know, we didn't force anybody. We said, do you want to wait? And they said, no. So I'm a presenter. I'm someone who books a show. Laurel, if I come to you and ask you about an artist on your roster, you're going to tell me that, you know, we'll talk about fee ranges and things. Do the artists set those fee ranges or do you work with them to say this is what it should be? Or how does that how do you come up or develop the, the fee ranges? We work with artists to develop their fee range. It's almost like starting with a project. What's the bottom line that you need to have? And then we back that out and take a look at um, expenses that they'll have on the road, uh, take a look at per diems. If they're an ensemble, what they need to pay their other musicians or their dance company. Uh, we've dealt with this a lot the last few months, especially with changing airline fees and gas travel right now, 
But our artists will say, oh, I didn't think about that. Or you're right. What about, um, you know, an extra night of hotel? You know, there's a lot of numbers that get factored into what we need to put uh, to put an artist's fee together. It's kind of tricky. How do you navigate that? And when a presenter can't do something, but they might be a good fit for your artists and how do you, the back and what's the back and forth like, I guess, is the question. Well, that's one of the things when we work with our artists, they have to do an isolated fee and they have to do a weekly nut. You can't take the, the one-off fee and think you're going to get that every time. And so we work with the artists to come up with the, the weekly nut uh, to amortize those costs, particularly, you know, ground transportation. The presenter on Monday night is not going to be paying you the same artist fee as the presenter on Friday night. You know, when I'm having my conversations with presenters, if I know I've got this one that can do this much and this one can pay a higher fee, I have to make the weekly nut which then the team is when they're doing their sales, they're like, okay, I got to have $50,000 so they can get 15 from over here and over here. Okay. Well, that means I can do two tens over here and then making sure the travel works and all the housings. And so it's really putting that puzzle piece together. And presenters are aware of this. The 1500 seat is not expecting the 300 seat venue to pay the same amount. So we work with artists for to really arrive at two fees. One is the isolated date run out and one is the weekly nut. We don't have to keep coming back to the artist back and forth going, does that fee work? Does that fee work? Does that, it just, I'll get the <laughs> weekly nut and I'll come back and go, here's the tour. Gotcha. You know, and then, and to, to ask an artist to approve quote a fee, that's going to get, sometimes you can, you know, depending on the artist, sometimes that can kick into the ego of, oh, I'm worth X. And it's like, no, we're going to go with the weekly nut that we've all agreed upon and ignore the month, ignore the, you know, the per gig because they'll go, oh, that's a really low fee. Why did you do that? And it's like, because that made the weekly nut and it's a Monday. Mm -hmm. There are also aspects that go into that depending on what region you're in. Some regions, you can't do Sunday, Wednesday, Friday. Some regions like Monday believe it or not, because it doesn't interfere with church or football. I see you have something called beyond booking. Can you just explain what that is? We often get calls and we're getting regular calls from presenters, from self-managed artists, people looking for advice. And we came up with the concept of beyond booking as a way to offer our expertise in a number of different areas. Jennifer just completed a summer course on uh, tour readiness and had a lot of uh, self-represented artists and even uh, a couple of our artists on our roster that wanted to make sure, you know, they were giving us all of the assets we needed for for tour. Why don't you talk a little bit more about uh, the tour readiness? Well, I'm going to clarify that it's tour readiness intensive because (laughs) people need to come prepared to work. Um, And they did. And it was a really good cohort this summer. Um, When it comes to business, you hire it or you acquire it. You know, it's it's beyond booking. We we had a lot of expertise that we weren't using that we didn't want to get sidelined. You know, why try to sit and figure this out when you can hire Laurel, who will basically come in and show you what you need to know. Laurel does strategic planning. Tiffany has a degree in Spanish. So if people need help translating their Spanish marketing materials, Tiffany has a degree in Spanish. Julie, um, our West Coast rep, ran a, a visual art gallery in, in Chicago for 10 years. So she has a whole aspect of gallery experience. Um, Sue uh, manages music libraries for Broadway singers. So we, we sort of compiled what it made sense for us that were other services that we had available so that one, we didn't 
you know, we weren't letting this expertise just die on the vine. I think the, one of the things that you've done with having this beyond booking available is that you've made yourself not just an, an agency in an artist management, but you're so beautifully serving the industry to develop organizations and, and people within the industry to move forward and being so selfless with your knowledge and your base. Being a resource is more important to us than being a salesperson. So when we're on the calls with our presenters, we listen before we start talking. Always. And one of the one of the things that's happened for me, you know, my background as a presenter and fundraiser and agent manager, uh, I've been asked and I've taught uh, adjunct faculty uh, in two arts administration programs and usually guest lecture at least once a semester because I love to see the students get excited about a topic or an area that uh, they might like to explore. We really pride ourselves on the visibility that we both, that we have in the industry as resources. I think that's incredible. And, and I know both of you, and I don't know if we've ever actually worked together. And we've had conversation after conversation after conversation. <laughs> and so that's a testament to your presence in the industry, despite business as a resource and as a colleague. You have things there that are for both artists uh, and presenters, but on the artists, it sounds like, specifically with your tour readiness, it wasn't just for your artists. You're serving artists that, that you don't represent. Yeah, and that was deliberate. One of the reasons we did Beyond Booking was because we can't represent everybody. And there are a lot of artists who are never going to be appropriate for an agent for a variety of reasons. But there's also no real place that's affordable for them to go and say, somebody, please tell me how to do this. You know, Laurel and I were very blessed to have some phenomenal mentors along the way. And, it, you know, this is just a, a pay it forward, pay it back. Uh, philosophy that we have. I'd like to talk a little bit about conferences because historically that's been pretty important, a good way to connect people. I'm just curious um, what conferences uh, mean for you in your position and what does the future seem to be heading towards? Conferencing for me as a you know first timer tw 23 years ago was critical to have and I follows through to today the face-to-face -face personal connection meeting with someone. You can't really read someone's facial expressions on a phone call. Zoom has been wonderful the last two and a half years, but there's still something about being able to have that one-on-one -on -one meeting to develop the relationship. That's, you know, we pride ourselves on the relationships that we have with our presenters and the con uh, conferencing. I'm so excited to get back. There's a lot of people I haven't seen for three years. And I think people are, are hungry and excited about being able to sit down across the table from each other or for lunch or sit and have a booth meeting. Our industry is so relationship driven that um, I don't think the conferencing model will ever go away. It's going to change. It's changing as we've seen, but um, we really need the opportunity to gather and have that uh, 
that one-on-one time. I, uh, not many people know this, uh, although more are now that they're listening to the podcast, but I actually have a time machine and I'd like to bring you both in it real quick. We'll make two stops for just a minute each. First, we're going to go back and we're going to see Jennifer when she was just thinking about that journalism degree, but hasn't registered for class yet. I'm curious what she would say to that, Jennifer, what advice you would have for her. That's that's a tough one because I was such a, you know, it was a non-traditional situation for me. Um, the journalism degree gave me the most flexibility of where I would want to go uh, professionally. It wasn't a narrow focus. You know, you can, anybody can write, you can do just about anything. And then Laurel, well, when you're about to go, uh, your legal degree and that that whole career path um, right before you actually officially again registered and you know you have a minute to talk to to that young laurel laurel wanted to change the world having having grown up in a suburb of detroit michigan and moving to a very small town in uh, indiana to go you know in high school i had aspirations of changing the world and i like to think now that in a way i have and in a way, I continue to. So I put a you know performing arts center in a town that didn't think that the arts were important. And the work that we do every day with our civic engagement and our artists and bringing arts experiences to communities on a variety of levels, you know, different shows and different community, you know, outreach and school programs. I like to think in some way, turning the page from, you know, legal work to to what we're doing in the arts, I like to think, yeah, maybe I am working to make the world a better place. You both are absolutely, and no doubt about that in my mind. Um, we have to wrap up in a minute, but I just want to make sure I didn't leave any major thing out that's important for the young people to hear any pieces of wisdom or advice or don't be, you know, I used to tell my, I told my students this all the time, don't be afraid to ask questions and, uh, Take every opportunity that you can get to experience different parts of arts administration. If you're interested in doing marketing, work with, you know, even if it's as a volunteer, work with one of the community-based theater groups. If you're interested in getting into a theater and running a theater, um, you know, work as a house manager or a box office volunteer. Get all the experience that you can because it will serve you tenfold. Just a little quip that is, was my introductory to Siegel Arts Management was at my very first conference, I was walking through the conference floor and I had an outlook that it was adversarial, that it was, you know, presenter versus agent and that I didn't understand at that point how important the relational nature of everything was. And so I didn't, I wasn't walking through with a smile on my face because I thought, Hey, I'm here, you know, we're going to, we're going to battle this out for the best fees. Um, and Liz Silverstein stopped me mid floor and said, Hey, why aren't you smiling? If you can't smile here, I don't know where you can. So Liz, And it kind of just took me into the booth just to chat with me. And, and talk to me about the industry a little bit. And she changed my outlook tremendously in about a minute and a half and changed the way that I've approached the industry from the start. And so the, the concept of beyond booking that you guys embrace has been in effect for a long time because Liz was this beacon that 
that that that showed me the way to to take as I as I pursued my career. That's very Liz, very Liz. Um, you know, she, it was, she was not opposed to walk up and go, you're new. Who are you? <laughs> and she just would pretty much be that direct. So, and, and, you know, she wanted everybody's story. She was always very curious about everyone. And, um, she started the new colleague session at, uh, the arts Midwest conference um, probably 20 years ago now. And, um, because she felt very, it, she was very dedicated to the fact that, the new people coming into the industry are the future and they, we needed them as much as they needed us for mentoring. You know, the nice thing about having a mentor is they can say, don't step in that pothole and, you know, and don't trip your, don't trip over here. And it, you know, having that mentor and having access to people who are 10, 15, 20 years ahead of you, um, you don't have to repeat any of the mistakes. You can, your learning curve is just shortened so quickly. Um, and Liz was very dedicated to making sure that that young people uh, learned it right, you know, learned it correctly from the beginning. You know, she was notorious for how to wear your name badge, um, you know. And but, you know, I would have to say, you know, from an agency standpoint, we've been like that from day one. And uh, but Liz was very much an embodiment um, and the concept of embracing the new was very Liz, very Liz. And, and you're talking about mentorship. These are programs that are available at both the regional and, and at APAP as well. Yes. Uh, yes. And, uh, Napama, I believe has a program, uh, for up, up and coming agents and self-managers. Um, but you know, a lot of times the mentorship will also happen just organically between agents and, um, you know, presenters, if, if, a, if a presenter is really smart, they'll, they'll recognize that that agent is a resource. They're not just, I'm not saying there aren't people who are just, you know, coming at you, sell, 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 because they're out there. But, you know, how are you supposed to find out about touring funding? How are you supposed to find out about consortium grants? How, you know, I, I always say when it comes to booking that the agents are the bees and the presenters are the flowers, and the flower in this field doesn't talk to the flower in this field. And you, you know, we talked earlier, you know, you two are in t very different regions. You would have no real reason to be introduced. It, it took another person um, who takes on that B function to make those connections. So if I have a presenter over here in Pennsylvania and they have an issue or a problem they're trying to solve, and I've got someone over here in Connecticut who has already solved that problem, I want to introduce the two of them so that they can, you know, mutually work out that problem and learn from each other. Um, so, you know, to, to look at something adversarial, you're really, really missing out on the richness of what we do. Fantastic. I like that. I want to thank you both for your time, but I always end by asking this one question. Uh, you can choose which order you go in, but what do you like most about working in this industry today? The people. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much, guys. It was great talking to you and we'll see you at the conferences. Thank you. Wonderful. Thank you, Josh. Thank you, Brian. I really love the conversation around marketing materials and how Siegel Artist Management helps their artists on their roster be marketing ready, ready or what they said, cover ready. Um, as a presenter, personally, they're right. I go to the assets 
That's like the first thing I look at when considering an artist. Go to their website, go to their social media channels and see how active they are, what sort of video assets, how much they're interacting with their audience. Um, Those things are really important because those are all factors in my decision as to whether I'm going to work with that artist or not. Yeah, that concept of cover-worthy asset, I love. And I will be using that in our office uh, often because I think that's a great approach. And I will say that having worked with some of their artists, they do have great assets. And not to name names, but I mean, there's so many incredibly huge artists out there that you're surprised sometimes how low quality their their pictures are. It's just amazing. Like they don't understand the idea of a high quality image. Well, and, and poor marketing assets really make the presenter's job harder. Oh yeah. Without resources, it's really hard to sell the show. Yeah. I think that's one of the unsung things that agents do is that they provide us all those assets. You know, without agents, it would be so hard to be a presenter, but having them honestly in so many ways makes it so easy to just kind of grab and go for us. Once we have a show booked, it's just, here you go. Here's these great images. Here's the copy. Here's everything that you can you know, edit. Um, but it's such a huge service that agents provide both to their artists, but also to us. In terms of copy, do you as presenters ever find yourselves taking the copy that's been provided and then having to change it um, or adapt it for more of a public audience versus a presenter audience. Um, I find a lot of times the copy assets are fantastic, but I have to tweak a little bit to make it more family audience friendly or dance audience friendly and really put it in terms that make sense to the public versus what I'm looking for as a presenter. Definitely sometimes, Katie, because it depends on who you get it from. Some agents will send you materials that are identical to the materials they set, that give you at a conference, and and that is geared towards the presenter, not the audience. And so, yeah, you definitely have to change it. But then there's many that, that do understand that difference and will send you the, the two. So Well, I think it's a fine line, too, because you're communicating with whoever your audience is, and you know them the best. So you want the copy to reflect uh, your audience. But um, you also want to honor how the artist wants to describe their show or themselves. Definitely. Totally. And then most of the time I edit for length. If I'm changing it or want to change it, I'll always have that conversation. I don't just take it upon myself and do it. What simple things do you want as assets from artists? Like for me, I want a 30 second video, a 30 second radio spot with room for a tag on the end. Good graphics, good logo. With those four things, I can roll. I think for a show that's really, truly interactive um, and has a lot of audience participation, I, to your point, Josh, I need video that actually shows that because that will demonstrate to the audience I'm marketing to what a good time this performance is going to be. So I think having those audience reaction shots, something that's from a live experience is really key. I do operate a lot in that family and uh, theater for young audiences uh, space and convincing parents to (laughs) drop everything and bring their kids to a performance. You really have to work hard to get their attention and convince them of that, uh, of the value of that. So I think something that's really engaging shows audience interaction is really key, especially in that space. The images that we use the most, especially for the front cover, are either ones where it's, there's no background or it's easy to cut the background out of the image, um, or images that you know are very beautiful but have the right amount of blank space so that we can put our logo on it. Definitely. They have a really unique approach to sort of their their own company and the industry. I mean, obviously, you know, when we look at artists and agents and like for 
for them, you know, an artist management company, that's what they're focused on. But they have found an opportunity to branch out of that and reach people who they're not consistently working with or providing more in-depth consulting experience, which I think is really smart, especially for for them, given, you know, what artists and, and agents went through the past couple of years. Like it's given them a way to diversify their own business, which I think is smart and really is going to elevate our industry as a whole. Um, I also think it's interesting to hear how agents curate their roster. Um, and I thought it was interesting to hear that like their strategy is that they you know, want to provide multiple shows per season or, you know, if you book one thing with them, it's not like the other artists are so similar that you can't work with them again for a few years. And I think from a a strategy of being a small business, that's really smart. Yeah. From a presenter's aspect in the size of, you know, venues that I've worked in, the other thing I really appreciate about them is when they started pushing out their roster list with sort of that range of fees, um, that was incredibly helpful just to know right off the bat going, yeah, this is in my price range or it's not. Um, And then you don't have to have that conversation of going, oh, I really didn't think that this was going to be that much. I think that trust and transparency, Kevin, like they really bring that um, with that rate card. And they're very holistic in their approach from the marketing to thinking about community engagement to supporting their artists and now supporting the industry through their consulting work. They really have a holistic approach to their business, which I really, truly appreciate hearing about. Well, I really appreciated this whole conversation that we got to have. and, And thank you, Josh, for taking part in that. The stories that they've told about how they came into the field from different areas, legal and also uh, journalism. And then they kind of, I don't want to, I always hate saying falling into or, you know, but they discovered their roles almost by accident. And so many people in this industry have the same type of story, even though it's a different story. And it's just really interesting because they're both rock stars in this industry and know so much. And yet, you know, this was never their original plan. I just want to say thank you to them for taking the time to speak with me and Thank you for tuning in and listening, and we'll see you next time. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening to the No Business Like podcast. Our producers and hosts are Brian Zelmer, Josh Benson, Kevin Maynard, Katie Miller, and me, Danielle Van Hook. Views expressed in this podcast are ours alone and not reflective of the organizations we are a part of. You can find and follow us everywhere at nobusinesslike.com, which has links to all of our socials. Stay in touch, my friends. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to... What is the name of our podcast? (laughs) There's no... There's no business. What's the name of our podcast? What's the name of our podcast?